when I went back through 10 years of data and looked at what Steven Seiler has seen in some of the cross-country skiing and what I've done with some of the people that actually have the medals in the Olympics that I've worked with for 10 years or more, I didn't see any of the polarized training that he actually saw in the cross-country skiing side of things. That Triathlon Show, episode 104. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dean Gollish. We talk about how you can become a more effective self-coach by having a good process for your self-coaching, by having the right knowledge and how to get that knowledge, and by minimizing bias in your coaching, or self-coaching, I should say, plus many other aspects. We also get into some maybe perhaps controversial thoughts on periodization, or on maybe even how you potentially shouldn't use periodization at all. So uh, that's very interesting. Dean, a few words about him. First, he's a coach and head performance physiologist at Carmichael Training Systems, or CTS. And over the past 20 years that he's been in this field, he has worked uh, as the coach to more than 70 national champions and more than a dozen Olympic and World Championship medalists. And uh, his expertise is... uh, he started out in cycling mostly, so like but mountain biking, road and track cycling, BMX even. But he has also worked with uh, triathletes, many triathletes, but also skiing and more recently motorsports and even the military. So uh, he definitely has a wide range of, of knowledge and it's that coaching process that I think allows him to coach athletes in so many different and varied fields. A very credible or solid merit that he has is serving as a physiologist for USA Cycling from 1994 to 96, where he introduced power meters with the national team and established training protocols for using them for the 96 Olympic cycling team across all different cycling disciplines. Before we get into the interview with Dean, this episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. They are the sweat experts who make sure that you can keep your performance up and keep cramps at bay with individually tailored electrolyte electrolyte intake. And until the end of February, just one more week as this episode goes live, all that Triathlon Show listeners can get one free box of Precision Hydration Electrolyte product by adding a box of Precision Hydration product on their website, precisionhydration.com, and using the discount code that Triathlon Show, all one word, at checkout to get that box for free. This episode is also sponsored by Triathlon Corner, the triathlon webshop that you can find on triathlon-corner.store. Make sure that you save it in your favorites in your browser, uh, because who has time for going to brick-and-mortar stores? Those things that, that you really know exactly what to get, like electronics, like clothes, like nutrition. You can so much more easily get that online and cheaper. So go to triathlon-corner.store and check that out. So with that said, let's go right into the interview with Dean Gollish. 
So I'm here with Dean Gallish from uh, Carmichael Training Systems, uh, among his other functions in uh, endurance sports. Uh, Dean, how are you tonight? I'm doing really well. Thanks. It's a pleasure having you. I was uh, mentioning in our brief pre-interview chat about uh, the WKO4 webinars that that you held that I've been really enjoying. And that's kind of what triggered me to to contact you and ask to come on and talk a little bit about some of the things that you talked about on those webinars, which is... Uh, not WKO specific by any means. This is not a, an interview on WKO4, but it's more about an effective workflow for coaching, whether you're coaching athletes or coaching yourself as a self-coached athlete. So let's get into that and start with uh, you talking a little bit about what would you consider an effective workflow for for a coach or a self-coached athlete. In, in let's, let's talk about the self-coached athlete in them coaching themselves and th- that workflow. Yeah, it's interesting because I, if this was 20 years ago, I don't know how I would answer. But now that I have maybe 20 years of experience and I don't look at it as sports specific anymore, where maybe I would have by reading all, whether it was the triathlon or physiology or coaching specific information. Now, it's as weird as it sounds, I look more at the military organization side of things because obviously they've had whether it's military tactics or had to move you know large numbers of soldiers different places and kind of the structure and organization so i find it really strange but one of the things that i look at that has made the most sense because i i could never come to sense of it in my own mind of how to work on a workflow or uh, analyze a workflow i just kind of did it and i don't think anyone really analyzes it intuitively or they do it intuitively they don't think about it in their own mind like how am i going to do this i just ended up doing it of what made sense and so one of the things that i found after the fact that made the most sense to me was uh there's this colonel john boyd which was a fighter pilot and he had a analyzation of how he went about things in fighter pilot or I guess they would call them dog fights within uh, fighter scenarios. But anyways, it's an, what they call in military circles an OOA loop. So it's uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. And so now I finally there, – and there's a whole regiment, and we'll, we'll try to – I'll try to get it. To, there's a really good uh, kind of blog post on it, and we'll try to get that in the, the show notes for everybody. But basically is – when you observe, say it's a a power file, you look at a power file and now you orient, that's the observed part. Then you orient the power file. So then you say, well, I did this at 6,000 feet or I did it at sea level or I did it at a hundred degrees or I did it at 50 degrees. So you orient the power file and then you decide off of the analyzation, good, bad, training, uh, and then you act and then you decide what should I do the following day or and you can do that with the analyzation of a file. You can do that in the analyzation of a training program, but it seems to work out really well. And as long as you stay on task with it, then it works out well. And so it, it's as strange as it sounds. A lot of the things that I look at now are military oriented, which maybe it's just the phase I'm going through with my reading and and analyzation of things but i'm trying to get outside 
the actual sport information and try to look at other resources. So the OODA loop is kind of what I would suggest. Yeah, and we we could mention here that that you, in addition to working with cyclists and triathletes, you have uh, is it uh, motocross and NASCAR racers that you work with a lot? So so yeah, you have. So it's strange that I work with so many athletes different. So it it was in the NHL in hockey. Um, I do some stuff with the NBA. Then I have a whole motorsport side of things. So whether it was MotoGP motocross nascar so i have a motorsport section and then the cycling triathlon and so on yeah yeah so yeah so so can we perhaps get into an example of uh, the the oodle loop and, and take well you you mentioned uh, analyzing a power file is, is this something that you do on a workout level or do you do it on a bigger level as well like analyzing a whole block of training or even a whole season. So I, I do it on all. I do it on all phases. It, whether it's a people are familiar with the terms of periodization, so you could look at the periodization. You could look at an individual file. But say yeah, I get up in the morning, come down, look at the computer. The first thing that I do on a specific athlete is I'll look at the actual workout file first. So then I'll observe. The workout file. So say I had prescribed what everyone's somewhat familiar with is that a functional threshold power workout. Say it was three by 20 minutes at, I don't know, 95% just to make it easy. So I would look at that power file and then I would start to observe the metrics that I put in to the power file or that I analyze. So power, heart rate, cadence, just the, no, the normal things that we generally look at. So I observe, and the observe part is what they actually did. The orient part in the analyzation of, is where their functional threshold power is set currently. So you had the workout power, but then you oriented yourself with the other metrics that was it in the correct zone or level that you prescribed what what is the reference line for the functional threshold power of say the last 90 days um what was the temperature what was the cadence those are the orient side of the oodle loop or the analyzation and so then i decide was that good was it bad did they do as prescribed and then i take that out of the workout view and then go back to the athlete view and then repeat it all over again. And so then I go back into the athlete view and go, okay, now when I put that workout into the athlete view of say the last year, where do I observe that it is? Do I orient it? So, so just to clarify, Dean, when we talk about the workout view and the athlete view for listeners not familiar with WKO, those are just ways that you can look at one workout in particular. And then the athlete view is when you look at the bigger picture, like you can look at, at stats and uh, and the progression over a longer period of time, whichever period you choose, just to, to make sure everybody everybody follows. Yeah, maybe I should have described that better. It, it doesn't even matter whether it's in WKO4 or whatever, but basically no, you're looking yeah, at the actual workout and then now you're going to compare it to past workouts of any time frame. And whether, say, you it was 20-minute efforts. And so I did 3 by 20 of the actual workout. Now I'm going to go out and look at all the 3 by 20s I've ever done or for the last year, for the last three months, whatever time frame as you described, 
then I'll go back and observe those, orient myself, and then decide is is there a trend going up or whatever the statistics I'm looking at for a prescribed workout. And then the act part. So in this OODA loop, I mean, I don't want to go crazy on the OODA loop. It's just, it's an example of how to look at something and create a coaching structure. Like coaches generally understand this and they do it intuitively. But if you're self-coached, a lot of times you just look and go, oh, that was pretty good. Because I, I, you kind of know in your own mind that those 20-minute powers were actually okay. But you don't really orient it to all the variables that can change that 20 minutes. And then you really don't always know what to do. You're more either patting yourself on the back or um, actually telling yourself that you did a bad job. That's more what happens in self-coaching. It's like, oh, man, what's wrong? I didn't do enough power or I did really good power. Everything's great. So now I'm going to do more. And so that's the the deciding part that becomes the problem with self-coaching. And that's why the structure ends up working. I mean, you could assign all kinds of different names to this and structures of the intuition, but you need to have a formula that you repeat over and over and over. So then once you decide on whether that was what was productive from the training, you can either go back and observe it again and just keep repeating it, or then you can act at the end. You don't always have to go observe, orient, decide, act. You can do observe, orient, decide, 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 and then act and say, okay, now I'm going to continue and do the workout that's prescribed for tomorrow, or I'm going to alter that. That's an act portion of it. So, so, so when you give that example of decide, 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 is that just you taking a step back from the workout level to uh, looking at uh, where it sits in in a bigger picture? Like, let's say your microcycle, and then going even, even, even further back into and looking at the entire mesocycle that you're in, and then maybe the entire season. Or, or what did you exactly mean with with that example? Yeah, I. I've- it's it's probably a little bit of everything. I know I'm, it's a little vague, but I do it within the workout. I do it within the cadence within the workout, within the power within the workout. So you just keep repeating it. It's more of a structure in your mind. Then when you come out of, say, the workout view and you look at it over time of all your 20-minute efforts, then you could look at however, if you did periodize it or if you're just steadily trying to increase the load over time, However you decide to look at it, but you need to keep with the structure so it takes out some of the variability in your coaching. Or I guess the, it, when you're self-coached, it becomes a, a reflexive th- uh, thing that you all – so today was bad. I got to do something tomorrow. Instead of staying with the structure that you created and understanding today was normal, and that's what I mean by – coming back out of it and within the cycles and, and repeating that structure of that OODA loop thing. So. Right. And and the decision part in the D in the OODA, is that usually you're looking at either the entire workout or some something within the workout, like power, cadence, heart rate, and then you decide whether it's good or bad, quote unquote, so like, or if it was as expected or better or worse, and or, or are there other things you can decide on? Yeah, so maybe like I, I make that mistake all the time, whether it's good or bad. Maybe it's, it's is it functional? What are we going to, is it productive? So I generally look at the largest variable 
that I weight the highest. So I'm always weighting power. So I generally look at power and I say if there's five variables, I'm going to weight that power. So it's cadence, heart rate, um, altitude, climbing, sitting, aerodynamics, whatever. I'm going to weight the power. And I'm going to say that's 80% of the thing that I'm going to decide on of whether, if, especially if I'm self-coach, of whether that was a productive. So, so the it's the good and bad, the productive part of it is that was the, it doesn't have to mean does, is the power high. It means is the power where I predicted it to be. So production means that I expected you to be tired today and now you're not producing the power, and the, but the power was only – five or 10 watts below what we kind of prescribed with a, a rated perceived exertion that's higher. So first I rated the power, and then after it was low, high, or indifferent, then I went to RPE of what the athlete, or I guess in the self-coaching, what I thought was the perceived exertion of it. So first I start at the highest level of weighting what is important, and then I start going to the little variables that I weight less, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And and then the the last step, the act part. I think that's something that uh, that is uh, interesting to dive into a, in more detail. Like, how do you then uh, know if you should act on uh, your analysis, whether it's after a workout or after a block of training? And and how do do you have any more? information or or like how do you act, decide how or how do you basically use that acting process so yeah so then i would go more into the analytics so once then i decided through whether it's training stress score or some of the other popular analytics out there once i went through that and decided where it was then the coaching starts to take over and says, okay, the act may be to do nothing, by the way. A lot of times everyone, especially in self-coaching, feels like they have to do something. But if you're going along and the power is within the error of, say, it's functional threshold power, if it's within 5 or 10 watts and of the prediction, then I'm okay with it. And then we just move on with the training. I don't do anything. Now, if there's extremes, and I have a, a measurement of those extremes in my analytics, so I look at maybe is it past one standard deviation? I mean, I don't want to get too technical here, but if it's, I have, is it the smallest worthwhile change? There's a number of statistics that I look at to say, okay, that was within the realm or it was way outside of it. Now, what am I going to do to act on that? And much of the time, it's rest. It, it's funny how after all these years, I try to use all these stats and analytics and on and on and on. And the solution to 90% of all the problems is to do less or rest. So that's an acting part of it because we can't go through every scenario in a podcast. Uh, but that, but that, that, that's really good good and, and uh, practical, I guess, that if you don't know exactly what to do, then uh, you could do much worse than, than choosing rest as, as an option that is likely to be the right one. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I've never seen the training actually correct it, by the way. When something's wrong, I've never seen training correct it. So. Right, yeah. yeah. That's 20 uh, years of insecurity right there. 
So. Yeah. So so that's that's I guess uh, already part of the answer, maybe a big part of the answer to my next question. But what I want to get into now is what are some pitfalls uh, that uh, people that are self-coached can fall into or tend to fall into? Yeah. So it's this is really difficult because all the information that a self-coached person gets is rarely complete. So this podcast, for example, for me to boil down all the information that I could give someone would take obviously the years that I put into it. So when they read, um, when they listen to blogs and the podcast, or they read the blogs, the podcast, and maybe an odd book here or there, it, um, it generally picked it. So they're a little bit uh, biased to what they had picked, what they're interested in. So that creates a, a false sense of direction. So I guess it's the following incomplete information. So you have to, so if someone was going to talk about functional threshold power, we, we, I keep using that example because generally everyone's heard it. And they go on to different sites, whether it's training peaks or some of the other um, Andy Coggins work or exert or whatever it is, and they read it. it, it could be a very lengthy article, but now they're done within, you know, 30 minutes of reading the article, they've uh, formed an opinion and then they move on. And I find that the person, whether it's Andy Coggin or exert or golden cheetah or whoever writes the articles, it's hard for them to communicate all the information and pitfalls that go in to that functional threshold power analysis in one article. So you have to read multiple opinions and really delve into it. And I feel like the self-coach athlete just doesn't have enough time to get in that, or they don't have the background in physiology to analyze the article that was written. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that does answer the question, yeah. And, and I think that another thing is that uh, on some topics, I mean, they there may be very different opinions uh, from different experts and coaches that are all expert and and nobody's necessarily right or wrong but uh, it's it's just that some things aren't like proven yet so so we we don't really know but but people have different things that they have found work for them but then if you go and and listen to all of them and this podcast is a, is a good example because there are coaches and and researchers and experts that have been on that have very different opinions on on certain topics so if you listen to some of the episodes then uh, then you will get conflicting information as well uh, how do you have any tips for how to how to deal with that yeah so th- that's like a very that's a very good point and actually i feel like that's super accurate so the only and so i'll give the advice to you is that we have to as a community start delving into the specifics more and more, meaning that, okay, functional threshold power, we do a general podcast, then podcasts, that's podcast one. Then we have 1A, which goes into it further, then 1B goes into it further, then 1C, and so then we can delve really into the specifics. I don't know if the reader, the listenership or the readership goes away further and further as you get more and more specific, but somehow as a community, we need to structure it so everyone understands the specifics of it rather than looking at the general trend and then going out because a coach said do three by 20. So that that's, I'm in full agreement with you. And then the other part of that is that it goes, it's funny 
when I don't know why I've gotten on this military thing, but one of the military tactics is even the wrong tactic done fully ends up working. So that's one of the old military tactics that you can have the wrong tactic, but if you uh, involve all the military force into that tactic, it generally works out right. And I think that's the same here is a lot of times if, if the person is self-coached or even other coaches out there, if they use a functional threshold power the way they've used it and they understand the errors of their strategy, it's okay. It doesn't have to necessarily be the way someone else prescribed it or 95% of the 20 minute power or doing efforts for one hour. It's what the actual person will do. And then you're going to learn by making some of the pitfalls. The idea with having someone else as a coach is to make sure those pitfalls come less frequent and in, in, in the improvement becomes more frequent. You'll still make mistakes, whether you're coached, self-coached or not. You just try to eliminate some of the normal mistakes that everyone makes. And so whether you adopt someone's strategy of functional threshold power, you just got to know of that strategy where the errors are, not what the actual right one is, or we would all be using the same training with already. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's really really good, and and I think that it's the old adage of stick to the plan. You know, even if it's not necessarily the the best plan, because there is no best plan. Obviously, there are many many good plans and some bad plans. But but if you stick to it, you're much better off than than just jumping from one shiny object to the other based on the latest podcast or or blog and and not having any consistency in in what you're you're doing. And and that's also where where the athlete needs to like having buy-in in in the plan and that, that's one of the reasons that coaching is actually so effective that that then uh, you avoid that jumping from one thing to the other and and hopefully the athlete buys into to the plan that they get from their coach and and that belief in itself is going to make the plan more effective than if it than if there is no no buy-in in it so uh one yeah one, one thing that uh, i also wanted to go into is how to Kind of try to stay objective. You talked a little bit about that you form your opinion after reading reading an article for thirty minutes, and and that's it. But uh, so so, do you have some tips for for trying to stay as objective as possible if you are self coached? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so in in our daily life, we're. I mean, uh, one of the things that I realized was a huge error in coaching, and now when I do the, whether it's the webinars or conferences, I found that there's a lot of really smart people out there. And so we have, say, a physicist that now enjoys cycling, so they understand how to analyze everything. And same thing, there's many different smart people that aren't necessarily in the cycling triathlon or coaching industry, but they're very smart, but they come in with such a huge bias. And then also vice versa, you have all the people that are in the cycling and and triathlon community, and they have a bias off of whoever has been presenting the most. So, and we have the bias in life. So we have kind of three separate problems that give us bias, and we try to eliminate that. So the first part is to understand bias. So I, I feel like in every um, presentation or webinar or anything, I should put up the same three slides every time that have people aware of their own individual bias. And so 
Uh, there's a, a Wasson, W-A-S-O-N, selection test, and you should just get on the Internet and do it yourself. And you'll find out that basically everyone tries to prove their, themselves right. So whether that's in the political arena, coaching arena, triathlon, whatever it is, you're always looking for a confirmation bias. And I think that's the first thing is to realize how bad it actually is, human nature. And then once you understand that, then you can go through a number of different steps to try to eliminate it. And so in that sense, I think we're getting better at it in the endurance sports arena because we actually have the tools uh, like power meters and running power meters and uh, timed events, and we can analyze that. So that information is independent of bias generally. So we're, I think we're much, when I go to other sports, motorsports, not so much because they actually have a lot of data. So they know that they're trying to eliminate bias as well. But when you look at professional stick and ball sports, what we call in the U.S., they have a ton of coaching bias. So you have to start, I guess here's a couple things is, number one, you got to start at some of the steps where the information is collected. So you have, say it's a power meter again, you have to really make sure the power meter is accurate and calibrated. So when you go out and you say, I prescribed this and you did this, was this what it was supposed to be? And then what is the error of that? So if you were supposed to do 250 watts, is it 250 watts? And what is the error of the 250? Was it between 247 and 253? Okay, you know what the error it is. Kind of the second thing is, is in really if you're self-coached, it's a little bit harder. But if you're a coach or self-coach, you should generally only use it, the information if it's in your expertise. So if you're somewhat an expert in functional threshold power, then you can use a little bit of your bias into that. But if you're not an expert in functional threshold power, then you should just use the data and move on. You shouldn't try to form an opinion. Um, and I guess another error that we can address with the self-coach person is that if you already think, which is positive and negative, if you think the training pro program works and you've bought in, like you mentioned before, and you go out and do three by 20 and it was prescribed at 250 and you did it at 255 and you felt like it's easy, then you're already under the bias that that was productive. So in a group setting, in a performance team, in professional settings, if the group knows what the leader's opinion is, then they sway that direction. In a self-coach situation, that's a bad deal because you already think the 250 is going to work, which could be productive because you're following the training program and that's all positive and you're bought in and you're getting better. So that's good. But then when it comes to doing more, the, you prescribe more, then it actually becomes a negative. So that's, that's a difficult thing that we always address in performance teams is trying to not let the person who is the performance director already predispose the group of their opinion. So um, then... If, if, can, I, can I cut in here? Is, yeah, if, yeah, yeah. If, if testing or, or raising a solution here? Well, the best measure of performance is performance itself, right? Yeah. So there's a number of people who say that. Um, but it's generally that's only race by race, right? So in, 
it, I, I forget years ago there, there, Eric Zabel was a sprinter from Germany in cycling and he raced like 120 races and he won 30, which was incredible. And he basically is a 30% successful. So when you're 30% successful on your PRs or everything, and you are the best in the world at one time, you're not very successful. So I would say that the racing portion of it is very difficult. So say you're a, a 10 hour Ironman or two hour Olympic distance and you are out for a PR. Well, 600 minutes of, so what 10 hours times 60 minutes is six, 600 minutes. And you did, you went better by 15 minutes. That's less than a percent or that's yeah, less than a percent. So it's very difficult for me to say that we were 1% better in an age group situation and that we predicted that and 15 minutes is going to change the whole world. You see what I mean? So that's why the race performance, you have to be a little bit delicate with it. And same thing the opposite way. You predicted 10 hours and you went 10, 15. That's a percent. So, I mean, aerodynamics, heat, uh, everything that goes into that, a percent is you would take a percent every time in the real world. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I kind of thinking about like just general FTP tests then if you do that maybe more regularly than what some people do. And I'm I'm not necessarily somebody who says that you need to test all the time or test every four weeks that some people do prescribe. But uh, but maybe to eliminate the bias, that would be one way to to make sure that you're progressing as uh, as you want to and, and stay staying on track if you have as controlled a test environment as you as you possibly can with an indoor trainer and everything well, what's your thoughts on that yeah I, th- I think it's fine i really don't have an opinion on it i i would never argue against that and i i probably wouldn't argue for it what i would what i look at is over time are we progressing and then did we get up to a point where you've plateaued over a couple years and is that limited with the time that the person has to train? So I would start using my bias, which is generally we've got, we've improved for the last couple of years and now we're to a point unless the person dedicates more time or rests more and has less work life, you know, within a normal age group setting, then uh, I don't know where the improvement would come from other than now we've developed for a couple of years. Now we can cut the volume and go to intensity. I mean, I have a number of decision trees and maybe it's not necessarily in testing or the race performance. Maybe it's enlisting the things that I've explained away. So maybe that's the way to the eliminate the bias portion of it is that I know it's not this. I know it's not this. I know it's not this. And then now here are the three gray areas that I need to address. So maybe it's the uh, putting my list together and explaining it. And another way to do it is try to prove you're wrong. So once you write the training program or you look at the data, you go back and before it's even started to be executed, where is this wrong or bad? And that's why the self-coach athlete, it's very difficult because they don't have the world. uh, They need to go ask someone else to review the training program. I guess is what I'm getting at, because where would I go wrong before it started to be executed? What We call that a pre-mortem a lot of times. Instead of after it's done, go back and review it, which you should do as well. Where did I go wrong? What could I have done different? Where, where did we think it was going to go right? Would you have changed the training program if you would have known this? 
on and on and on. You have to do that before the training program is executed, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I, I use that myself a lot in my, my coaching, trying to prove myself wrong. And, and that's, I think that's a brilliant way to, to eliminate some, some of the bias. And I think that's something that's really uh, getting a hold in the business world as well. Many, ma- many successful companies are, are using that to various extents, that, that model to sort of playing the devil's advocate, but, uh, but I guess more like really systematically. So, so that's a good one. Uh, one in thing- a group study, what we do is that when we're, I'm in a, a number of performance teams, we come up with a strategy, we go through it all, we have a plan, and then one person independently is just by random chosen to go away and try to prove the plan is wrong and no, then see, come see. back and present to the group. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, what, no, one more thing related to this first, and, and that is you mentioned there as uh, in uh, as a side note perhaps about about uh, athletes not necessarily having the exercise physiology background or knowledge uh, required to understand articles for example are there in your opinion prerequisites for being an effective self coach like how much do you need to know and and how can you uh, learn more and educate yourself if you are self coached man i i, I really for me, being having a physiology background, I still find myself reverting to all that data and learning that I've gone through. And I see the errors constantly in a lot of the training programs that are written in the structure of just the basic physiological knowledge. So, can, I mean, can you give an example much, of that? That, that? That would be interesting to, to hear. What, okay. What's something that you see? Functional threshold power. To, uh, to say that you actually have an improvement of five watts and that's a real-world improvement means you don't understand the physiology of functional threshold power. Because unless you've shown that over a, a quite a long period of time, then it's within the air of just day-to-day variability. And the weight that is put towards functional threshold power in certain situations physiologically Obviously, it is the most important, I guess, physiological system. And then that functional threshold is the output of that system that goes towards triathlon, cycling, and so on. But when you look at how we measure it and the error in that, and then the error in day-to-day variability, five watts shows that most people don't understand functional threshold power physiology. Mm, okay, and so so go on about uh, the the quest, the actual the initial question, the prerequisites, and not how much you need to know, and so on. Do, do you have anything more to add to that? Well, I mean, <laughs> you never can know too much, right? I mean, so I think as much as you can read, and some of the prerequisites are just general physiology, and there's quite a number. And I'll I'll make sure I get that to you in the show notes so everyone can see it. Brilliant. Um, yeah. There's a number of books and um, r- running ones are pretty good because they kind of go through the basics. I also think that the um, Training Peaks and the Andy Coggin books are pretty good because they relate it to the power for the cycling that Hunter Allen and Andy did. And then, and I'll get you all the notes to that. So specifically, you can look at those physiology yeah, yeah. and how they relate to 
triathlon cycling and power so yeah yeah one book i i'm going to ask you as well but but one book that i have to give a shout out for because it hasn't in uh 90 plus almost 100 episodes uh it hasn't been mentioned by any of the guests but jack daniel's running formula man that's a brilliant book yeah. and it will teach you everything so so i just have to plug that here it, it it was one of the first books that i started with when i started learning you know i actually right now on my desktop i have the spreadsheet there and it's a huge comprehensive running spreadsheet that has the predictions for everything for times. Like if you run a 5k, this, this is what your 10k is. This is what your VO2 is. This is what, and I actually have the spreadsheet and it's on my desktop 24 seven all the time. And it's more of a reference. I don't even generally use it anymore, but when you look at how comprehensive the actual spreadsheet, we'll put it in the show notes and you look at that and you're, it's like, Oh my gosh, someone has already done all the hard yards for us. So, yeah yeah perfect let's spend just a couple of quick minutes uh, it's a big topic but but you have some interesting thoughts on, on periodization uh that uh, that i want to get into and then we'll see maybe we'll have to come back to a follow-up episode and, and do a complete one on periodization but 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 just quickly what we talked about in the pre-interview chat can you can you describe that a little bit for the listeners yeah so um over so what I did just a little bit of background so year yeah when I was doing my uh, academic work or graduate school I came down for, from the university that I was working with and we went to Olympic Training Center here in Colorado Springs and we did a, um, a overtraining study and so the idea was that we were going to overtrain the athletes on purpose and. Um, we did all the blood work, isokinetic testing, VO2 testing, and then we had actually performance tests, which was a 4,000 meter pursuit. So we did all this. So the idea is that we were going to do double days of workouts, three days in a row. So in maximal efforts of three minute efforts of VO2. And so we blocked them up. We did morning and night for three days in a row. Then they had one rest day and then they did the other tests on the other two days, which was a VO2. So say it was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they did three days of double day workouts. Then they had Friday as a recovery, Saturday as a VO2 test, Sunday as the performance test. So in reality, they were doing five days and we did this for three weeks straight to look at the blood markers, isokinetic testing or force testing, um, and then the performance in the VO2. And I mean, we killed these people. And so then in the end, they had their best performances ever. Now, granted, maybe we needed to do it six weeks, 10 weeks in, to get to the overtraining. But what it taught me was some of the block style training and then the linear in comparison to the linear period as periodized training where you're say you're going to increase 10% across the board. And then once we had the power meters and we could actually analyze what I would prescribe or you would prescribe and then put those models, whether it was block training or periodized training or say Steven Seiler's polarized training, and then look at the data after the fact. So what I found over all these years is that probably none of those training programs is any better or worse than the other one. It's easier for me to know to use the block style training 
to know when a person is tired and I've overloaded with what I wanted to overload and then I knew to rest so there wasn't as much gray area as there is in the general periodized training, which is, I feel, difficult to do individualized, as a meaning that a, a self-coached or even a coached athlete. And this is now, with all the data we have, it's still difficult to see that if I, the next block of training or the next phase of training, I should have said, do I just add 10% and they can do more 10% to power, 10% to volume, 10% to both in a linear style periodized training. I feel that that's very difficult for me to analyze. And then when I went back through 10 years of data and looked at what Steven Seiler has seen in some of the cross country skiing and what I've done with some of the people that actually have the medals in the Olympic that I've worked with for 10 years or more, I didn't see any of the polarized training that he actually saw in the cross country skiing side of things. Does that make sense? Am I communicating that? Yeah. Yeah. In, in a way, I, I guess it's super fascinating. And I guess that one of the main takeaways is that we don't really know know if there is an, an exact periodization model that works better than the other. Uh, and, and that's, probably means that we shouldn't like overemphasize that necessarily and i was actually just today i was reading uh one of the sections of the triathlon science book it was the running base training by george dalem from uh the university of colorado who, who wrote that and and he went into periodization and the research that is available on it and and it's uh, there's nothing really to show that traditional linear periodization works better than any other training system in uh according to that review that he did and uh, but in strength training there is quite a bit more work on on uh, periodization which was interesting and and there it seems that at least for well-trained athletes uh, just a norm, an, an undulating periodization might be better than a traditional linear periodization or even a, a reverse linear periodization uh, if you intersystems athletes that are reasonably well-trained from the start and and when they measure, measured how much muscle strength they they could improve so yeah that was uh maybe some, something that that i found interesting that that i could add to that but uh do, i don't do think have, we so... really understand periodization to be honest with you that yeah when you go around if you went and asked 10 people what periodization they would just say oh well you train and then you rest and then you train and you rest that would be what they would consider periodization or as you mentioned earlier when you have a macro cycle a micro cycle basically that's training then resting training then resting and so whether you block that together and you call that periodization, there's one really good review of periodization. Uh, at the last, the author's name is, what is it? Keely, I think, K-E-I-L-E-Y or L-Y or K-I-E-L-E-Y. I'll find it and we'll, we'll put it in those show notes as well. Brilliant. Man, there's a lot of show notes going to go with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyways, he has a whole review of just periodization and what we've thought over time or even in weightlifting, if you go back to all the Russian modeling of weightlifting years, I mean, 40 years ago, and how what they called periodization and how they did it, it's, it's, I don't, it's different than what we call it now, even though that was the initiation of periodization. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think that's uh, that's about enough for that topic, and uh, we maybe left more question marks than, than answers with that. But <laughs> I think that's. Then we did it right, actually. Then. 
<laughs> so let's move into the rapid fire questions. And uh, yeah, as I alluded to earlier, the first one will be: What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports, or or you know, your field of expertise in general? Uh, yeah. So the I I look at this Pacey uh, podcast, so P A C E Y podcast, and it just has a variety. It's more in. Uh, it's a varied field, so it's not just in uh, cycling or triathlon. In fact, there's very little of that. So there's a lot of. And then the other thing, there's go ahead, foot, sorry. football or, or soccer uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, other team sports as well. Yeah, I've listened to it. It's it's good. Yeah, really good. But it's experts, so it's it's actually bringing the act- the PhDs or the professors and the studies and really at a really specific part of it. Yeah, so. yeah. It's the Pacey Performance Podcast, I believe. We'll link to that. Uh, what's yeah. a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, I don't think uh, it had anything to do with any of my education. I think it's more my parents of trying to just do the right thing each time. That I, that I didn't know it at the time, right? It's never by design. But I realized over time of coaching and working with athletes in the actual field was trying to do the right thing each time with the person and communicating that rather than any habit per se. So, yeah. mm. And finally, what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some point in your career? Uh, probably at the beginning, I wish I wouldn't have gotten sidetracked into multiple things. I wish I would have delved into one thing in which I – Maybe I did okay now that I look back on it, but not as well as I should have. As, say it was altitude training. I wish I would have went to the nth degree, spent a lot of time on it. But when you're in it as a young coach or young sports scientist, you, you're like you, – it's like a squirrel. You're like, look over there. Look over here. And now there's this. I wish I just would have done one thing, went to the nth degree, and then build on that over time, whether it was altitude training, heat training, power training, and really understood it completely and then moved on to the next thing because if i would have known i'd been in it 20 something years then i would have had i wouldn't have had to go back so often and relearn things Mm. so finally if the listeners want to follow you and learn more about you you're on twitter at dean gollish and uh, also we link to your bio on the cts carmichael training systems website Uh, and uh, is there any anything else any and if anything that you want to mention before we before we close off this interview no no that was good i enjoyed it perfect thank you so much for for sharing your time with us today dean okay thank you all right i really hope that you enjoyed that episode and that it uh, provoked some thoughts and some thinking whether you're a self-coach athlete a coach athlete or a coach yourself it's uh, definitely an interview of a slightly different mold but uh, I, I think that that you will find it very very useful and and I certainly did there are a lot of things that that I will start including in my thinking process when when I coach my key takeaways for for you to get out out of this episode is probably that to get the most out of your training especially now I'm talking about if you're a self-coached athlete you need to one have a process to analyze your training and and how to act on it. And it doesn't have to be the OODA loop, as uh, Dean talked about, and Dean also said that it doesn't have to be that. But having a process which works for you, that's, that's the key here. 
And two, you need to have a way to minimize bias. I really like that pre-mortem that we talked about, and, and that's something that I've been using for a long time, like trying to really uh, shoot holes in your plan and find flaws with it. And three, become as knowledgeable as possible, but still avoid paralysis by analysis and jumping from one shiny object to the next. So obviously, I would recommend listening to this podcast for becoming knowledgeable. Uh, at the same time, as we talked about, there are some different opinions on certain topics that, that you'll hear here. So so you can't just keep jumping from one, one plan to the next. Stick to the plan that you that you decide is the best for you. And and if it, that, that is difficult, then probably coaching is actually the way to go for you and, and getting that single plan that you can stick to and buy into. The second key takeaway here is uh, the discussion on periodization. That was really, really interesting. Are we overthinking it when there's so much that we don't know? Dean talked about a lot of interesting things. The polarized training concept that uh, I talked about a bit before and it's been very hot in... Uh, in media and on Twitter and in research and there's good evidence and Steven Seiler's work is absolutely excellent don't get me wrong I really really think that I've been trying to get Steven on the show I would love to have him haven't succeeded so far so maybe if you give me more ratings and reviews on iTunes that will <laughs> that will help but anyway that what Dean said it's he's not the first coach that I've heard said was what he said that when he goes back and analyze his athletes they don't follow the periodized plan even if they too have those Olympic medals and, and and those world championship medals. So there's a lot we don't know. So that you don't necessarily need to overthink this and make it too complicated. So to find all of the show notes for this episode, you can, as usual, go to thattriathlonshow.com. And if you have questions and comments, thoughts and ideas, make sure that you post them in the comments on that show notes page. You can contact me if you have questions. Uh, suggestions for topics or guests that you want to have on by emailing me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's michael with a k i've also had quite a few people email me recently about coaching Uh, so so i want to say that at the moment i'm fully booked but you can email me and if i at some point decide to take on more athletes or slot opens up uh, a slot opens up otherwise then we can see if uh, you are the one that i'd really like to coach uh, because i'll i have a few people on that waiting list but it's not a first in first out or however you want to term that but actually we will see what is the best mutual fit and and that is how i will decide at that point if uh, who i start to coach whenever a slot opens up or i decide to take on another athlete or two Uh, But in the meantime, I do make custom training plans, which is individually adapted to you based on an in-depth questionnaire and and email conversations as well a bit. But most of the information I'll get from your email questionnaire. Uh, What you don't get that you would get in coaching is the constant monitoring and feedback and interaction. But uh, you will get a a very good plan that, uh, that will set you up for great success. So you can email me if that's something that interests you. And again, that's michael at scientifictriathlon.com and Michael is spelled with a K. In Monday's episode, I talk with Dr. Stacy Sims on differences between females and males and considerations in training, nutrition, hydration and so on between the two genders. So that will be really, really interesting. Finally, let's thank our sponsors Triathlon Corner. Triathlon Corner is the new online home of shopping the best triathlon products in the world to great prices. 
They ship worldwide. They have fantastic customer service. I can vouch for that because I know Jan, who is uh, the man behind Triathlon Corner personally. And they have brands like Garmin, Stages Power, Café du Cycliste, Mako, Zone Free, Hoka One One, Zip, and many others. And you can find them on the triathlon-corner.store. And you can also just click the link in the show notes. And thank you also to Precision Hydration. Remember, just one more week to take them up on their offer to all of our listeners to get a free box of Precision Hydration product by using the discount code ThatTriathlonShow, all one word, at checkout on PrecisionHydration.com. Also, if you want to know more about Precision Hydration, of course, check out their website, but also listen to episode 49, my interview with Andy Blow, the founder of Precision Hydration. It's one of my favorites ever. Thank you, as always, for listening. Really appreciate you tuning in week after week after week and more than once a week for many of you. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>